So in this episode today, we're going to be taking a look at the history with Microsoft and Apple, looking at the times that they were friends and the time that they were more antagonistic to one another and the relationship that they have one another even now. But first, let's take a look at what's new on Azure. So there's a couple of things at GA this week. The ones I want to hit on are some things that were available for storage. Now, storage accounts have long been one of the mainstays on Azure because they provide a cheap, rather easy to configure storage options on Azure so that it that is dynamically scalable so you're only really paying for what you use rather than the full uh, storage whether you're using it or not so a new some new features that did preview or go into GA on uh, storage were the ability to use geo geo zone redundant storage on Azure now uh, before of this you could do zone redundant storage, which basically meant that you could have your data replicate within the same Azure region to another zone within that region, which was another data center geographically close to the, uh, the one that it was primarily located in. Now with geo zone redundant storage, it gives you the ability to expand that so that you can have inter and intra regional availability of your data. So you have a one that's more local and then one that's also in another Azure region at the same time and then you can do read access geo redundant storage as well and these give you the ability to have local redundancy and uh, regional redundancy between your storage accounts another cool feature that also were related to storage that did go into ga is azure storage account failovers which is the ability to fail over to another account when one becomes unavailable so this combined with the other abilities that you can have geo redundant storage and geo zone redundant storage give you a failover story for azure storage accounts which makes it even more highly available than it already was and some other features that went into preview related to uh, things on azure was the ability to use web application firewall with azure front door for service logging logging enhancements which is more integration with azure front door web application firewalls which azure front door is quickly becoming the the point of entry or the choice point of entry for azure for external resources coming into an azure environment rather than having to use a uh, bunch of, of system IPs or a bunch of public IPs, you can have a single one that kind of will allow the traffic to be more uh, evenly distributed across your Azure footprint without having to expose a lot of different IPs to the uh, public internet. Private AKS clusters also are available in Azure Gov, which is the ability to have the APIs available in a private subnet, so you have to publicly expose those. And then the ability to use the uh, new series of VMs that were made in uh, Japan East, and then the ability to have Azure Private Link on Azure Batch. So those are basically the rundown of the what is new on Azure this week. So uh, not much to announce there, but just some really cool features around Azure Storage that make it very, very usable for a high availability story. But now on to our main story. So today's episode is entitled Apple and Microsoft Sworn Frenemies. And a frenemy is both somebody that is your friend and your enemy. And Microsoft and Apple have been enemies at times in their past, as well as friends. And there's been a rocky relationship between both of these companies. And it really gets its start in the early days of the PC industry. So the PC industry really got its start in the mid-70s with the launch of the Altair uh, computer, which is by 
many historians consider to be the first PC that was available. And it was a PC that was basically a bucket of parts and you had to solder it all together to make it work. And it really didn't do much except make lights flash on an LED panel. And then you might be able to do some things like play music with it because of some of the innovations that people were doing with that particular PC. All in all, it was a very basic computer, but it had a rather... Uh, faithful following and a very enthusiastic following and so much so that Bill Gates uh, saw an opportunity and he wrote a basic interpreter for the Altair and that became the basis for what started Microsoft and also during this same time in, in Silicon Valley out in California there was the birth of the Homebrew Computing Club which was a set of people who were interested in building computers in you know in your garage in your basement that were basically home computers and part of that club was Bill was uh, Steve Jobs as well as uh, Steve Wozniak who both were working on uh, the Apple computers uh, out of that and so the homebrew computing club gave us Apple computers and then Microsoft was writing software and many of the enthusiasts in that club went on to do many other things in the PC industry and it was out of these early days in the PC industry where Microsoft was really focused on software and Apple was focused a lot on hardware and providing a platform. And Microsoft was really trying to write software, not so much for one platform, which was kind of the assumption that many people had, but they were trying to write software for a lot of different platforms. So they were targeting not just Apple, but they were targeting other platforms that were available at that time. Now, moving forward, uh, Apple wanted some software for the Mac, for the Apple computers that were coming out at that time. And so they contracted with Microsoft and Microsoft provided a basic interpreter as well as uh, apps for the early Apple computers. And in 1983, Microsoft projected that about 50% of its revenue would be coming from the uh, Apple platforms that were available at the time. And so Microsoft was definitely doing well at the time because of the success of the early Apple computers. But in 1984, uh, things started to get a little bit rocky because IBM launched the PC. Uh, the IBM PC started what we consider to be the PC industry or the PC market that we are still living in today where you have a lot of different proprietors making different kinds of hardware and they all generally run the same operating systems. And IBM launched that the PC, but they needed an operating system for it. They didn't have their own. So they contracted with Microsoft and Microsoft provided DOS and IBM installed a Microsoft operating system on their hardware. And not only did uh, Microsoft provide the operating system, they provided a basic interpreter as well as apps for the IBM PC as well. And so Microsoft software was running on IBM hardware, which was going against what Microsoft had previously done, which was principally focused on writing software. And now they were competing directly with Apple because they had now had their own operating system, but although they weren't making their own hardware. And the competition between the Microsoft operating system and the Apple operating system really put Apple and Microsoft into competition, at least in that realm, although Microsoft was still producing apps and interpreters for the Apple platforms of the day. 
And going forward with the PC industry, uh, the realization that Bill Gates had concerning the openness of a particular platform was that in the future that was going to be very important to the success of many of the platforms. He realized that perhaps the success of any PC was to make it open and so that different manufacturers could build it and it could run a variety of different operating systems and then the software industry would be able to write software that would be able to run on a variety of different hardware as well. And in a memo that Gates wrote to Apple at the time in 1985, after the PC had launched and it had become a huge success, uh, Gates wrote to Apple in a memo. He says, Apple must make the Apple, the Macintosh a standard, but no personal computer company, not even IBM, can create a standard without independent support. Even though the Apple realized this, this uh, they have not uh, been able to gain independent support required to be perceived as a standard. By independent support, he's talking about external support to the company. So in the case of Apple, Apple is the proprietor behind the uh, Apple products, Apple II and the Macintosh, which launched uh, around that same time. And they uh, were pushing for a single uh, company to be the proprietor behind pretty much the entire stack, the hardware, the operating system, then the whole experience. And then other people could bring software to that. And what Gates realized was that for it to be successful, he was saying that the Apple needed, the Apple Corporation needed to open up that particular platform and make the platform more open so that they could provide the software for it the, the and the other vendors could make the hardware and it become a standard for which uh, the operating system could run on top of that standard. And then uh, those who wrote apps could then provide apps for it. And by by this time, Steve Jobs was focused on the Lisa at Apple, and it was a closed architecture. It did not have an open platform, and he was really driving for the Lisa. And that's ultimately what ousted Steve Jobs from Apple in 1985 was the failure of the Lisa. It was a very expensive product, and it didn't really sell very well compared to the uh, Macintosh platform. And so with the failure of, of Lisa, Apple focused principally on the, the Macintosh platform beyond that. But by the time that happened, it was already uh, a done deal that the PC was the de facto standard in the PC industry and the Macintosh was going to be playing more of a niche role uh, going forward. And that's when the Microsoft hegemony really started is in the mid 80s. And it really got its uh, traction in the late 80s. By that time, Microsoft was selling tons of uh, PCs with Microsoft uh, operating systems on them. And uh, that and those were all running DOS and running uh, Windows, uh, I'm sorry, Windows based uh, operating environments with Windows 1 and Windows 2, which weren't hugely successful, but they still um, did have some success. Uh, as for, as for providing a graphical user interface for running applications. And Microsoft did eventually get sued by Apple because of Windows. They felt that Windows was copying the Apple experience that was provided through the Macintosh. And they believed that it was a copyright infringement for the look and feel of the icon driven uh, UI with Windows, uh, and things like that. And, the, out of this lawsuit, Microsoft and uh, HP had also been named. Microsoft and HP ended up winning, and the 
aspects of the uh, operating system that they so-called copied were things like icons and draggable uh, windows and overlapping windows. There was, uh, I think, 189 different things that uh, Apple had named that were uh, copied from the Apple platform that were also present in Windows uh, 2 and Windows 1. And these were uh, later declared by the judge to be something that, that didn't copy it and that the the, the remaining elements that were uh, being named as something that were copyright infringements were indeed not something you could copyright. Now, whether or not you agree with that judgment is really not the point, but even so, this uh, created a conflict between Apple and Microsoft over the de design and development of UI-based uh, systems that the Macintosh was known for, for being easy to use for, is one of the selling points, and, and Apple felt like uh, Microsoft had ripped them off whenever they produced the Apple uh, whenever they produced the Windows operating environment, it really wasn't an operating system by that point, but it was still uh, running on the top of the disk operating system or DOS. And then we enter into the 90s. Now, by the early 90s, the PC industry was in full uh, force. Uh, Microsoft was uh, was king uh, during that time, and that's really when Microsoft's hegemony over the PC industry really began. Uh, the Apple Corporation was really playing a more niche role. They had, they did have a, a customer base and they were still selling their platform, but the lion's share of computers at that time were uh, PC compatible and they were all running DOS. And then in 1992 or 1990, Windows 3.0 launched and and became the first widely successful version of Windows. And then Windows 3.1 launched in 1992. And it it offered some um, upgrades to Windows 3.0. And then in 1995, of course, we get Windows 95, which was uh, probably one of the most successful products that Microsoft had up to that point. It's really where Windows became an operating system, not just an add-on to an operating system. And the graphical user interface was the first thing that the user saw when the machine booted. They didn't see a command prompt. Uh, they rather, it booted into Windows 95 and DOS was more hidden away as it was used more of as a, as a bootstrap, not so much as a uh, main part of the operating system. And it was, they were, the two were bundled together as a single package rather than selling DOS separately from Windows. And the, the GUI wars uh, at this time had uh, been, had begun, but even so, Microsoft was certainly on top uh, at this time with the lion's share. But even so, uh, Jobs had some um, not so nice things to say about Microsoft during this era. Even though he wasn't at Apple, he had moved on to start another company called uh, Next, which was producing a Unix-based operating system uh, based on BSD. But even so, he was uh, more of a third party looking in. And uh, he said of Microsoft some uh, rather scornful words. And he says these things about it. He says, the on only problem with Microsoft is that they just have no taste. Uh, they have absolutely no taste. And what that means is, I don't mean that in a small way. I mean it in a big way, in a sense that they don't have, they don't think of original ideas and they don't bring much culture to their products. And when you say, why is that important? Well, you know, proportionally spaced fonts uh, they come with type settings and beautiful books. Uh, that's where uh, one gets the idea. If you weren't, uh, if it weren't for the Mac, they would have, ne you would never have had that product. So I guess I am saddened by, by that, not by Microsoft's success. I have no problem with their success. They've earned their success for the most part. 
I have a problem with the fact that they just make really third rate products. And he's getting at the point here where uh, Apple had done a lot of work to make the presentation of fonts on the screen uh, pretty and, and by providing uni uniform spacing between the font, the actual characters. So it didn't look like they were on, uh, coming out of a typewriter, rather that it was much more fluid. And so uh, you had something that looked more like a book that was set by a typesetter on the screen versus something that looked like a typewriter in a rather crude text editor. And the uh, point he was making is that Microsoft had taken these ideas and had uh, ripped them off and then put them in their own products. And they weren't coming up with original ideas. Rather, they were just ripping off everyone else's ideas and repackaging them and then selling them. And this uh, criticism came from Steve Jobs about two years, though, before he returned to Apple. And Apple, during the late 90s, had had just gone into a slow fade. Uh, they had not really uh, get re recovered from their early successes in the 80s whenever they had the Macintosh platform and they were doing really, really well during that time. During this time, we see Apple really on the verge of bankruptcy and they really didn't have a lot of um, money in the bank prior to Jobs' return. They had tried a couple of things that were uh, failures and they had eventually... Uh, did heed Bill Gates's advice that he had given him almost 10 years before where they did open up the Macintosh uh, hardware standards so that others could build Macintosh clones and run Mac OS on top of those uh, clone hardware. And you had these kind of generic uh, white box Macs that were available in the mid, mid to uh, late 90s. But when Jobs returned to Apple in 1997, he basically shut down all of the uh, failed products and uh, really uh, shut down the open platform that um, Mac had become. And he began to really clean house uh, a lot of the executive and high uh, ranking uh, leadership at Apple at the time. And he really focused on trying to make uh, Apple profitable again. And during this time, Microsoft also threw uh, Apple a a lifeline as well. Uh, during 1997, Microsoft bought $150 million in Apple stock, non-voting stock. And this deal was one of the times where Macintosh and uh, where the, really Apple and Microsoft were, were friends uh, in spite of the animosity they had had in the past. And the lifeline that Microsoft threw to Apple really did help revitalize Apple as a company. And as part of that deal, uh, Apple would use IE or Internet Explorer as the default browser on the Mac. And they committed to making uh, Microsoft Office uh, for the Mac for another five years beyond that. And the Mac has also received uh, updates on Office much beyond that five-year deal into to the present, of course. But it was during that the, the late 90s that uh, Apple was able to return to profitability and they were able to get their feet under them again and really start doing some innovations. And Apple shifted away from focusing on PCs and they started to think about how they could make a uh, devices. And that's really where Steve Jobs really took the company in a completely new direction uh, starting in the 2000s. Now, the 2000s uh, really marked the time of the of Apple's revival. Is in the late 90s, of course, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. But by the end of the 2000s, they were the most valuable company in the world. 
And the products that were coming out during the uh, 2000s, of course, were the, the iPod, which was uh, a huge success. It, it re, it re uh, thought the music industry and how we consume music through uh, rather than using CDs and traditional media like that. It was something that you could download and install onto a portable device and listen to. And then in 2007, of course, is the launch of the iPhone and the iPhone changed the, uh, the, the landscape of the mobile industry as well. And the smartphone industry up at that point had been focused on enterprise, but we really see a shift away from the traditional QWERTY keyboard with a small screen to the touchscreen based smartphones that we still are using today. And the iPhone is largely responsible for making the smartphone something that was available to the masses, just not to business uh, associates and business executives that were using them at the time. And so that is uh, two other cases where Apple really did revolutionize particular industries, uh, music and mobile. And then they force kind of converge with the iPhone where the iPhone becomes a single device for listening to music as well as uh, taking pictures, as well as making phone calls and a myriad of other things that you can do with a smartphone. And during that time as well, uh, Apple was still focused on the Macintosh, uh, though they didn't lose sight of that. They, they ran the, the famous campaign, Get a Mac, where you had the, uh, the geeky PC and the, the more suave Mac, and they would compare and contrast the PC that was represented by Microsoft, supposed to be a little bit clumsy and a little bit, uh, unpolished, while the Mac guy was suave and more polished and more friendly and, and cool. Um, and that Macintosh sales did, in fact, increase quite a bit during the 2000s, uh, over those years. Now they never gained a huge market share in the, in the PC space, but even so there was a, a huge uh, upsurge in the people buying Apple's Apple products as well as uh, people still buying iPhones and iPods and among the many, a myriad of other products that really revised, uh, revived the company and set them on a track to becoming a, not just a, a niche player, but a, a force to be reckoned with inside of the technology space. And this uh, rivalry between Microsoft and uh, Apple during this time was was principally focused on on the desktop platform that Apple was trying to sell and Microsoft was trying to sell, and they did have competition between Windows and, and Mac OS, and there was a lot of, of heated discussions on which one was superior, which one was better, and there have been. Many, many discussions of that continue even to this day as to which one's better. You've got a rabid fan base for Macs. You have a rabid fan base for PCs. And then you have uh, some other people like me that are kind of very, uh, over here saying, hey, what about Linux? And and now people are starting to listen. Oh, what is Linux? And they're starting to get interested in it more so than ever. But even so, um, the uh, rivalry at that point was a healthy rivalry, not so much somebody where they're, they're backbiting and suing each other over things. Uh, the the main backbiting and, and suing each other was not Microsoft and Apple. Rather, it was uh, Apple against uh, Samsung and fighting a number of proxy wars against Android uh, over many of the same kinds of things they were fighting uh, Microsoft for in the late 80s. They were doing a, almost a repeat of that in the uh, 2000s and, uh, and early 2010s uh, over the Android operating system and how it had uh, in many ways, uh, copied the iPhone. Uh, so it allegedly did. Uh, even so, by the end of the 2000, 2000, uh, 
<laughs> Apple had a return to profitability and suppressed Microsoft as the world's most valuable company. And Bill Gates and Steve Jobs sat down and had a uh, a long interview at the D5 conference where they they did highlight the the rivalry they, they had had and, and in many cases they had almost uh, buried the hatchet in a lot of ways. And they had some nice things to say about each other. They laughed and they had a good time at that interview. And it was largely considered one of the milestones in the technology industry, given the rocky history of Microsoft up to that point. Now, beyond uh, the 2000s uh, into the 2010s over the last decade, uh, the relationship between Microsoft and Apple has remained more or less the, the status quo as it was when the, the original uh, PCs launched. And Microsoft, had, they still make a desktop operating system that competes directly with Mac, and it's more of a healthy rivalry. But, he, but given that the, the desktop space is still dominated by Microsoft and, and Apple's kind of a more of a niche player, it's still a, um, a healthy rivalry, but not something where they're at one another's throats per se. And even so, uh, Microsoft doesn't really focus so much on selling Microsoft software and licensing it as much as they do uh, focus on the cloud selling software as a service now. And so Microsoft's business model has shifted away from the more traditional things that they've done. And Microsoft has focused in on trying to provide uh, uh, software and services for people to consume on whatever platform they might have, whether it be a PC uh, whether it be a Mac, whether it be a phone, a tablet, whatever it might be. So Microsoft has gone back to uh, focusing on software and software as a service. And Apple has become a device company. They sell uh, iPhone. Obviously, that's their biggest uh, product. They also have iPad. They have the Macintosh. They also sell TVs and they sell watches. So they're a, a hardware company. They make principally devices for people to buy and use. And Microsoft is focused on software. So in a a demo recently done, um, Satya Nadella, the new uh, CEO of Microsoft, and he's not so new anymore, he's been there for about six years, I guess, uh, did did a demo of Microsoft Office running on iPads and iPhones. Uh, and he and Microsoft has continued to produce the uh, Office software for Apple platforms, e uh, even into the present. They also produce it for Windows, obviously, as well as for uh, Android. And so Microsoft has gone back to their roots in a lot of ways of providing software that will run on basically any platform that you can uh, have. So what are the takeaways from this? I think there are two or three primary takeaways that we can say to this particular relationship between Microsoft and Apple. Um, Apple uh, really has always focused on making a platform that was easy to use and that was well polished. And the, the importance of design in any software package uh, is, is one of the things that makes it have appeal. And I, I would uh, say that it's true that Apple has produced some very slick products in the past that have really appealed to a broad base. So we can say that that industrial design is is important for products and important for the success of products if a uh, company wants to be able to sell those and, and market those. And Apple's um, mantra has always been to produce that kind of uh, product that would be uh, have an appeal for folks that wanted to buy something that was easy to use and that was intuitive, that had a lot of uh, cutting edge technology on the platform that could be uh, used for uh, just anybody who could who could look at it and kind of figure it out without having to have a lot of deep knowledge of the platform. And that's where uh, Apple has really shined. 
There's also the question of the second takeaway is the question of openness. Now, I, I've touched on this before when I've talked in the past about open source technology and whether open source was indeed better than closed source or closed source was better than open source. I've never been one to think that open source is a guarantee success or closed source is a guarantee of success. For me, the, the thing that, uh, did in the Apple Lisa and really the, the, the Apple platforms in the eighties was the, the general openness of the IBM PC that became the IBM PC market. However, you can look back and you can look at the iPhone and you can say the contrary was true where Apple had a lot of success with the closed platform and they, they dominate and still have a really strong market share for uh, in the in the phone industry, so you could you could argue that our open architecture is important. You could argue to argue that uh, it's not important. I, and I tend to think that it's really neither. What you really need uh, for success when concerning openness or closeness is not so much either one of those. Rather, what you need is. Uh, a strong, a strong proprietor behind the project, whether it be an open project or a uh, closed project. And in the case of iPhone. The strong proprietor is Apple, of course, and the, and the strong proprietor behind the success of the PC was Microsoft, even though you had a variety of, of uh, hardware manufacturers producing that. And the success of Android, the strong proprietor in that case has been Google, even though you have a uh, lot of handset designers out there that are building phones that all run Android. In all of these, you have a strong proprietor behind the project that's pushing it forward. And then you also have the ease of access. And that ease of access could be two things. It could be ease of use, like we see with Apple's uh, products, or it could be uh, inexpensive uh, so that it can be afforded by the average person or even somebody that's less than average uh, in, from uh, the point of income. And this is really what has been the success behind something like the PCs, which have traditionally been a at a lower price point than the, the, the Apple products, as well as Android phones, which have always been at a lower price point than the, the Apple phones as well. And so ease of access to those phones by, because they, they're, they're inexpensive or ease of access through the, the actual experience that comes with the phone, which could be a really nice polished UI. So in either, in, in, in this case, what we see with, uh, the successful platforms that we do have today and in the past is strong proprietors and ease of access. And the last point that we might, we might make on a more personal note would be that, uh, a, a friendship is is rather rarely ever friends forever or enemies for life. Rather, um, relationships tend to be um, friends for a while, or sometimes you might have conflict. And the the mark of a a good relationship is not so much the ability to avoid conflict, but to resolve that conflict and move on from that conflict. And I think that Microsoft and uh, Apple as uh, historically had been a adversaries in a lot of ways, but in many ways, they've also been friends uh, with one another and had a symbiotic relationship in a at a many points in their history, uh, particularly with the Microsoft lifeline, the early days of Microsoft selling software on the Apple, and even today with Microsoft really delivering software that will run on anything, including uh, many of the hardware platforms that are provided by the Apple platform. So uh, at a personal level, we can uh, say that we we should work on 
figuring out a way to resolve conflict, even though we still might be rivalries, we don't have to be destructive in the relationship. We can figure out ways that we can uh, still be rivalries with one another without trying to uh, kill one another. And that will provide a competition uh, between the two that that innovation is driven forward. So thanks for listening to this edition of Fireside Tech Talks with Blaze. I look forward to seeing you on future episodes. I do want to do a piece on Microsoft and IBM in the future, as well as look at the personal relationship between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and look at how that is unfurled. So look forward to those episodes and upcoming uh, Fireside Tech Talks with Blaze.